Good morning. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 2. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is God's word. Well, I'm excited to preach this passage this morning. Um, This passage introduces another section in the book of Philippians. Paul has been talking about his mindset and essentially how he views life as an opportunity to live for Christ, right? And he sees his dying, his death, as his gain. And he goes back and forth about which is better, and he finally kind of concludes that it's better for him to remain for the sake of the Philippians. And now he's going to address them. He's going to say, hey, now here's how I want you to live. And he begins with this sentence, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. By way of introduction this morning, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about what that phrase means. That's not a phrase that's uncommon for Paul. In fact, if you look in Ephesians and Colossians, you'll see similar phrases where he exhorts believers to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. At first blush, it can seem like, because of our understanding of the English word worthy, that what he's saying is that we have to somehow retroactively earn the gospel. Let me illustrate that misunderstanding with this illustration. One of my favorite movies is the movie Saving Private Ryan. I love that movie. Um, It has one of the most probably cinematic, tear-jerking moments of all time, which is at the end of the film, right? You'll recall, uh, right? Uh, the, the unit has come in. They've saved Private Ryan, right? And the captain, Captain John Miller, is there on the bridge dying. And he calls Private Ryan over to him, and he looks up at him, and he says, James, earn this. Earn this. And then he dies, And the shot is right on Matt Damon's face, and you see him age. And suddenly, Private Ryan is no longer standing on the bridge, but he's standing at the grave of Captain John Miller, the man who had sacrificed himself for him. And and just heartbreakingly, he's talking to the grave, and he's he's saying, hey, I've tried to do the best that I can. I've got my family here with me. I hope that as I've lived my life, that at least in your eyes, it seems like enough. And then, then his wife walks up and he turns to his wife and, and heartbreakingly, and I can't watch the scene without just weeping. He looks at his wife and he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. And she does. And essentially the, the film ends. And, and the idea is that essentially, right, Private Ryan has lived his entire life with this ethic of I've got to live up to the sacrifice that these men made to save my life. Well, in looking at this sentence, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, it can echo that scene, right? It could seem like 
Paul is saying, hey, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross on your behalf. Now it's time for you to live up to that. How could you do that? How could you live a life worthy of the gospel in that sense? That is not at all what Paul means. (laughs) That's the good news. It's not at all what he means. That is not even close to what he means. In fact, he means the exact opposite. That understanding of that phrase would lead you to think that, hey, your call as a Christian is to make the most of yourself. You have to somehow make so much of yourself that somewhere up in heaven, like as Jesus is looking down and seeing all of the good things that you're doing, right, that he kind of like nudges his father or the spirit and says, man, I'm glad I saved that guy. Look at all the stuff he's doing. That would never happen. And Paul is so abundantly clear in his other teachings that we can never earn the gospel. The gospel is a free gift. It's given to us, um, to us as sinners that, that are totally undeserving, past, present, and future in this life. We don't deserve the gospel. We can't earn it. That is not what he means here. Instead, the, the English word worthy kind of gives us that sense, but the, the Greek term here has overtones of citizenship. Essentially, um, maybe I can illustrate it this way. Uh, you know what a miser is, right? Miser is someone who has an incredible wealth, but they don't live like it. They don't live like it at all. They're frugal and, and in fact, cheap. Um, they're not generous. They hoard, right? And in fact, many misers throughout history have lived their entire lives without anyone knowing that they had the kind of wealth that they had. Our citizenship, because of the gospel, is in heaven. We are wealthy beyond all imagination. We have everything because we have Jesus. What Paul is saying is that we should live like it. We who are citizens of heaven should live as though we are citizens of heaven. Like we should live as though we are a part of the kingdom of God. As though we have everything. And as he fleshes that out through this passage, that becomes more and more clear. And the end result is not that we make more of ourselves, but instead in our life, we make more of the gospel. So here's our outline for this morning. A worthy life is one that stands firm in the faith. A worthy life is fearless in the face of opposition. And a worthy life is one that is unified to other believers. So let's take a look at that first point. A worthy life is one that stands firm in the faith. See that in uh, verse 27, the second half. So that whether I come to you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one mind, one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, we've been stuck at home and I've been doing a lot of distance learning. So spent a lot of time with kids. And so my, my thinking may be a little bit childish this morning, but when I hear that phrase, stand firm, I think of the children's song about the wise and foolish builders. You know the song? It's based on Matthew chapter 7. kind of goes like this. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. Right? You know it. The rains came down and the floods came up. Rains came down, floods came up. Rains came down, floods came up. But the house on the rock stood, what? Firm. Stand firm. You know the rest of the song, right? That's the fun part. Foolish man builds his house upon the 
sand. <laughs> Foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. Those rains come down, the floods come up. Rains come down, floods come up. Rains come down, the floods come up. And the house on the sand goes, splat! <laughs> That's my kid's favorite part of that song. Um, but it's not the foolish man's favorite part of that song, right? <laughs> the, the splat is, is not worthy of the gospel. Building your house upon the sinking sand of what the world has to offer is not worthy. It's, it's miserly. It's not taking advantage of the riches that you have in Christ. We don't build houses on sand. We build houses on the rock. We have the firm foundation of Christ, and we want to stand on it. We should stand on it. Living worthy of the gospel means that we plant ourselves on that, and we dig our roots in deep to that. But here's the challenge. I think oftentimes when the rains come down and the floods come up, we want to run to anything but that solid rock, don't we? We want to run to whatever it is that, that we can find. Oftentimes, I think we run to all kinds of different idols. My favorite idol is comfort. When this pandemic came in, all I wanted to do was watch Netflix. I wanted to escape in all kinds of different ways, ways that would produce my comfort. I didn't want to have to deal with it. I didn't certainly want to turn to Christ and recognize my own lack of sufficiency. That's another thing that we like to run from the rock on. Right? We want to run to our own self-sufficiency, like we can do this. You know, when this whole thing dropped, everybody in this church was trying to do everything. We were trying to figure out all the different things that we could do. We, uh, the, the staff, we, we came up with about a million different things to do, and we realized somewhere about two weeks into it, really the only thing that we need to do is we need to stand firm. Do you see how the right understanding of what worthy living looks like affects that? right? Like, if we have that wrong understanding, we're, we're trying to do all the things. We're trying to be firm on, in and of ourselves. We're trying to build ourselves up. But if we have that right understanding of what worthiness looks like, then essentially we're just, we're just depending more upon Christ. CDK, I want to ask you this morning, how are you depending? How are you standing firm on the foundation of Christ that you have? How are you taking time to rest and rejoice in the firm foundation that you have in Jesus Christ? You need to be doing that regularly, especially now. And I want to encourage you, too, that this is not something that you do by yourself. You know, a lot of times people think, okay, I'm supposed to stand firm on the foundation of Christ. That means more quiet times, more study time in the Word. It definitely means that. I hope you're doing that. More prayer time. I hope you're doing that. But it's not something that you necessarily do alone. There are lots of ways that we have that we encourage one another with the foundation that we have in Christ. Community groups are still meeting. Have you reached out to those in your community group and allowed them to encourage you with the firm foundation that you have in Christ? Our senior pastor is doing daily devotionals. Have you tuned into those? Our elders are meeting three times a week to pray. Have you joined us for any of those? You know, there's lots of ways that we as a church can dig our foundation deeper into the solid rock of Christ, how we can stand firm, how we can live our lives as a worthy followers of Christ, worthy of the gospel 
in this time. You know, there's an illustration that was shared with me recently. Um, you know, redwoods are really tall trees with really shallow roots. Their roots only go five to six feet deep. Do you know how they survive storms? It's because their roots, even though they're only five or six feet deep, they spread out and they interlock and they're in groves. And so essentially, five to six feet below the surface of a redwood tree is a whole interlocking kind of network of root structure. They're, they're depending upon the roots of other trees and collectively they all stand up. Jesus Christ has not only given us a firm foundation, but he's also given us each other to encourage one another and to point each other to the firm foundation that we have in Christ and to interlock with each other combined with him in unity. Let's look at our second point. The second point is that we who are living lives worthy of the gospel live fearlessly. You can see that in verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Remember that right and wrong understanding. Fearlessness is not something that we do in order to earn the gospel. I am not fearless so that Jesus will be up in heaven saying, man, I'm glad I saved that guy. He's earned it. I am fearless because of the gospel. I am fearless because of what the gospel gives me. Remember, citizens of heaven are invincible. Remember Romans 8? We studied Romans not that long ago here in this church. We who are in Christ have nothing to fear because what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can heights or depths or uh, angels or demons or powers or principalities, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? No, nothing can. We are invincible. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Paul is saying we need to live like it. We need to live like it because fearlessness is an omen. It is a sign to the world that what we believe in is true. It's essentially saying to the world, hey, fear is your thing. We don't have that in our country. That's not something that's a part of where we're from. Our fearlessness in the face of our opponents, Christians, it convicts and condemns the world and calls them to a greater repentance and turning to Christ. John Wesley once said this, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. <laughs> I love that quote because it's such a great picture of what Christians can do when they live out of all the benefits that we have in the gospel. But let's pause for a minute. Just like sometimes we run from the firm foundation of Christ, oftentimes we as believers are fearful. Oftentimes we're afraid. Remember, too, that these, this fearlessness doesn't just convict and condemn the world. It also convinces and confirms us of the truth of what we believe in. Remember those redwoods, right? Remember that interlocking root system. As we take heart, as we depend upon Christ and we see each of us living out of the benefits of the gospel, it encourages us to do that collectively together. And that brings me to my third point, and I'm really going to camp here. The third point is being unified. A life worthy of the gospel is one that is 
in unity. It's really all over this passage. Um, unity, it starts in, in verse 27, right? One spirit, one mind, si- striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict as you saw that I had by Paul. Um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, picks up with the same kind of themes, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. It's just, it's interwoven all throughout this passage. This, this concept that Christian lives lived in a way that is worthy of the gospel are totally enmeshed together, totally unified. And remember, our right understanding versus our wrong understanding. You could totally take that, right, with that wrong understanding of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel, and you could make that into an imperative that makes you have to earn it, right? right? Again, like, I have to be unified with all these people, I'm going to be so unified with all these people that Jesus is going to be up in heaven going, man, glad I saved James Sutton. Man, he's just the glue guy who's holding the entire church together, right? That's wrong. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that, in fact, Jesus Christ has made us one. That is the reality. We are one in Jesus Christ. That is done, finished, completed. And our citizenship in heaven is one unified, reflecting the Holy Trinity itself, right? Unified with each other and unified with Christ. We are one mind, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one everything, right? In Jesus. That's what we have. So now live out of that is what Paul's saying. Live out of that reality. And And verse 27, I think, is helpful in that it gives us three perspectives to that unity. Um, It talks about spirit, mind, and action, right? One spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. To help illustrate these different kind of perspectives on what our unity looks like, what it looks like to live out of this wonderful unity that we have in the gospel, I want to use the illustration of an orchestra, okay? Think about an orchestra, right? It's one, but it's got many parts, it's, it's something that creates beautiful music. It's, um, it's something that's amazing, really, when you think about it. If you've ever heard a really great orchestra play, it's this kind of thing that'll bring tears to your eyes. When he talks about the unity of the spirit, I want you to think about the conductor. What would an orchestra be like without the conductor, <laughs> right? There would be no one to guide the orchestra. There would be no rhythm, right? There would be no direction, um, The Spirit is, for the church, the guide, the one who sets the beat for the work of the church. It is such a blessing, right, that we have this one Holy Spirit who guides and directs us. Why is that a blessing? Well, here's why. It's because each of our little individual parts, we don't necessarily have a clear sense of how they fit together. And in fact, we probably couldn't fit them together in and of ourselves. And oftentimes, as we're going through our lives, we don't really know how it fits. We have to just kind of like trust, right, that the conductor, that the Spirit is combining all of our parts together and using them in such a way that's going to come together and fit, right, to bring glory to Christ. That's what unity in the Spirit looks like. And, And that's such a blessing. It's such a blessing that... It's not up to us. 
that you don't have to figure out how to fit all of the different pieces throughout all of time and all of space of the church into one kind of holistic whole that makes sense and is beautiful. The Spirit's doing that. You can rest in that. You know that. So follow the Spirit. Second thing, unity of the mind, right? One spirit with one mind. Uh, the mind, the unity of the mind is like the music, right? He's, he's saying, essentially, I want you to have the same mind as me, right? That's the, the flow of this. Remember, he's talked about, for me, Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? And he's going to move into, starting in 2 uh, verse 5, he's going to start talking about us having the same mind as Christ. And he's going to give the Philippians two more examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, of what it looks like to have the same mind as Christ. What is the same mind of Christ? Well, we're going to get a whole sermon on this next week, but Christ is one who emptied himself, became a servant, humbled himself to death on the cross, and was exalted by God. That's the music that we're called to play. That's the music that Paul was playing. It's essentially the music of love. Christ's sacrifice, you know, right, Christians, that that's how we define love. This is how we know what love is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, even though it would be gain for him to be with Christ, decides ultimately, hey, I'm going to stick with you guys because for me, I want to be a part of playing the song of Jesus Christ. I want to serve you guys. I want to pour myself out. I want to empty myself for you, right? Timothy, Epaphroditus, all of the saints, all of them have had a part in this song. And in fact, in verse 29, when Paul starts talking about, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's saying, hey, you have a part in the song. You get to play the song. You get to engage in, in suffering, right, for the sake of Christ. Now, that's a weird thing, right? It's a weird thing to hear somebody say, hey, you get not only to believe in Jesus, but you also get to suffer for his sake, right? Oftentimes, we tend to think about faith and, and salvation as the gift, and the suffering is kind of the string attached to the gift. That's not how Paul saw it. He saw it as all gifts, <laughs> right? Like, not only do I get to believe in Jesus Christ who played the greatest love song, but now also I get to add my voice to that song. I get to suffer as a sign of my love for Jesus. It's an opportunity. It's a limited time opportunity where I get to participate in the song of my Savior. So our suffering, our, our following after and having the mind of Christ and the same mind of, as Paul as we live our lives, that's the song. That's, that's the unity of mind that we have. And then there's also a unity of action, Right? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 27. You know, I love this quote by um, J.A. Motire. Um, he said this, The church which is experiencing unity must be a church without passengers. Is there unity where there is the tacit or spoken attitude, I agree with you, but I will not do anything for you. 
Acquiescence is not unity. Consent is not cooperation. Approval is not partnership. Our unity isn't just a unity of spirit and mind. It's a unity of action. It's something that we do together. And if you think about that orchestra illustration, not only do we have the music, not only do we have the conductor, but we also get to play it. Right? We get to play it. And so here's my question, CTK. Are you playing the song? Are you playing the song? Are you keeping in beat with the conductor? And are you engaging in singing the marvelous song that Jesus Christ sang when he came to earth and suffered and died for us? Because you're invited to participate. This music isn't just something that was done in the past. It's something you get to do. It's something you get to be a part of. I hope that you will look at ways that you can do that. There's so many different ways. There's so many different ways, but I think so often we are just satisfied with knowing the music and knowing that there is a conductor. We want to be audience members. We don't want to be on the stage, but we're called to perform. And what a blessing that is. That's what worthy living of the gospel looks like. So there's several different ways that you could do this. One way you can do this is you can encourage your neighbors right now. I mean, this world is ripe for opportunities for you to perform this song. You can serve them. You can love them. You can pour yourselves out for them six feet away, (laughs) right? But there are so many different ways in which you can serve and love those around you, ways that you can care for them. Um, If you want to join with our church, you can join our efforts um, in caring for those impacted by this situation by donating food or money. You can send a note of encouragement. You can... Um, start encouraging those in your household. There are so many different ways for you to participate in this song. Don't sit in the audience. Get up on the stage and perform. You know, in order to, and just in conclusion, I just want to say, Jesus' dying words weren't earned this. His dying words were, it is finished. In him, you have everything, CTK. You don't have to earn the gospel, but you do get to treasure it. I hope you'll treasure it. Your firm foundation, your invincibility, your unity with all the saints, that is for eternity. Live like it. Live like it's yours. Um, You know, I want to come back just briefly as I'm closing to verse 27. You know, there's a section of this that's never really stood out to me the way that it stands out to me right now. And that's um, the second part of verse 27. It says, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent. Let me read that again. Whether I come and see you or I am absent. You know, never before has that stood out to me before because I don't think I could relate to the Apostle Paul quite as much as I can right now. Um, He's in prison. He's unable to come to the church at Philippi. They're suffering in persecution. I'm sitting in an empty sanctuary. I'm not sitting, I'm standing in an empty sanctuary preaching. I can't come and see you. We're not able to worship together. And yet, notice how the reality of Paul's distance from these saints of the early church doesn't impact the reality of their unity. 
the reality of our unity in Jesus Christ, the reality of all that we have in him, is not impacted by time or space. We can say that we are one with the Apostle Paul, and we are one with each other. And my hope, CTK, is that even as we are spread out, even as we are on lockdown, we might hear about the marvelous work that God is doing through each of us. You know, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, and at the end of the sunrise service, um, we got this real treat in that Danny put together this multitask-tracked song of In Christ Alone, (laughs) right? Do you remember that? It's the one where uh, Vanessa Etheridge was singing and her kids started climbing all over. <laughs> it was just like that was like the best thing. Uh, that's a picture of what our unity looks like right now. Even though we're alone, even when we record stuff like that, it's separate. And yet the Spirit orchestrates that, puts it together into a beautiful song, giving glory to Christ. My hope and prayer, CTK, is that you would participate in the song. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.